Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As I mentioned in the last episode, chapter 11, verse 1 should really be considered the end of chapter 10. It is the conclusion to the entire argument of chapters 8 to 10. So when Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, he's bringing that whole argument to a close. He's saying, I am willing to forgo all manner of pleasures and privileges for the sake of the gospel and for the honor of Christ. And so should you be, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Then in verse 2 of chapter 11, he begins a new section. Here, he is addressing their questions about public worship. This section runs all the way from chapter 11, verse 2, through to chapter 14, verse 40. In chapter 11, he is talking about presentation and appearance, and then the correct method and meaning of communion. And this chapter contains some of the most confusing and controversial passages in the entire letter, So we may need a few extra minutes to make our way safely and usefully through it. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Let's just pause here to notice that Paul seems to be commenting at their request upon how well or how poorly they have understood and carried on the traditions of worship that he attempted to establish in their midst. He says here in verse 2 that he commends them with respect to the traditions about gender, attire, and presentation during worship that he's going to talk about in the next several verses. But then down in verse 17, just before he talks about communion, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So again, if we were to attempt to backwards engineer this letter, it would seem that they wrote to him and asked something like this. Dear Paul, we have a few questions about worship. We've been requiring the women to wear the normal costume of the Roman matron in public services. Some of the women were wondering, however, if because we're one in Christ now and because men and women share equally in Christ, if all such distinctions should now be dropped. Some of the women have actually been adopting male dress. We've put the brakes on that, but would like to have an opinion on this matter from you. Also, we'd like to discuss the process for communion. We've been doing it thus and so, and would like to have some confirmation from you as to whether we are doing it correctly. Love your friends in Corinth. Now, if that does somewhat reflect the nature of their inquiry, then it would seem that Paul is commending them on the first issue and correcting them on the second. In verse 2, then, Paul is basically saying, yes, you're on the right track here with respect to presentation and attire in worship. And I want you to understand why this tradition is worth preserving. He begins to make that argument in verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 
Paul is saying here that every human being is under authority. Even Jesus Christ, with respect to his human nature, is under authority. Jesus the Christ is king over all human beings and subject to God the Father. So the physical universe has been established with a certain order to it. David Pryor puts it this way. The divine order is God, Christ, husband, wife. The husband is no more superior to his wife than God is superior to Christ. But as Christ chose to submit himself to his father, so the wife should choose to submit herself to her husband. Closed quote. He goes on to say, this fundamental order of relationships is to be clearly reflected in Christian worship, closed quote. So when women participate in public worship, they must not look like they're attempting to undo the natural order. They must participate as women, and therefore they must give some external indication that they are at peace under their husband's authority. That is the central issue in this text. Put simply, appearances matter. We ought to have figured that out by now if we're paying attention to this letter. That was the whole point in chapter 8. You know, Paul says, that there is no reality to these pagan gods. But it looks like you don't know. It looks like you are sitting at the table of Christ and then getting up and sitting down over there at the table of Serapis. You know that Serapis doesn't exist, but that's not the point. Appearances matter. So it is here we must be very careful not to communicate in any way a rebellious attitude toward the order of creation. Now, our best guess here is that there were some women who, having heard Paul say something very much like what he said in Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Having heard that, they overapplied that. They took from that the idea that gender had been obliterated by redemption. If you are a Christian, you are no longer a male or a female in any sense. Your created identity is destroyed by the blood of the cross. And, and so now they reflected that misunderstanding in their physical presentation and gathered worship. Now, it is easy to be sympathetic to that misunderstanding. Paul does tend to speak in bold capital letters. He's, he's making a bold point in Galatians 3. It is really important that people understand that with respect to our salvation graces, with respect to our inheritance in heaven, and our standing in Jesus Christ, there are no second-class citizens. We are all, men and women, Jews and Greeks, rich and poor, joint heirs with Jesus and sons and daughters of the living God. Praise the Lord. But that doesn't mean that our gender no longer has any reality to it. Gender was distorted and complicated by the fall, but it was not the product of the fall. It was an aspect of original creation. So we have to be extraordinarily careful how we apply this gospel principle. J.I. Packer, as always, does a great job of threading the needle. He says here, the man-woman relationship is intrinsically non-reversible. This is part of the reality of creation, a given fact that nothing will change. 
Certainly, redemption will not change it, for grace restores nature, not abolishes it. Closed quote. That is the point that Paul is making. And that is the distinction that Paul wants to see preserved and reflected in the gathered worship customs and traditions that are maintained in Roman Corinth. We jump back into the text at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, let me quote J.I. Packer one more time. He reminds us so helpfully that the biblical revelation was given in terms of Eastern culture, environment, and thought forms, all very different from our modern industrial Western world, and it has to be translated into modern terms before men can fully grasp its relevance, close quote. That is exactly the challenge we have with respect to this passage. It involves all kinds of cultural cues that would have made perfect sense in a first century Roman context, but that we struggle to understand in 21st century North America or 21st century anywhere else. I'm not sure where you would go to hear this text as a native. So we have to be very cautious here. What is clear is that Paul is creating a new and distinct worship tradition. He says in verse 4 that men are to pray with their heads uncovered. Well, that is different from how it was done in both Judaism and Roman paganism. Jewish men prayed with their heads covered. They did then and they still do now. And Roman men prayed with their heads covered. So Paul is saying, we will not do that. We will signal with our dress that something has changed. Scholars often assume that Paul is thinking here along the same sorts of lines uh, in terms of symbolism that he refers to in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There, the unveiled face refers to the miracle of regeneration that allows a person to truly understand God and to truly love and appreciate the Word of God. That's the mark of true conversion. And therefore, we're going to start a new tradition. Men are going to pray and participate in gathered worship unveiled. But women are going to remain veiled. And the reason for that would seem to be that the veil in Roman culture communicated that a woman was under the authority of her husband. And that's an idea Paul wants to maintain. The Pillar New Testament commentary, quoting Judith Lynn Sebesta in her book, The World of Roman Costume, says here, For a married woman to neglect the covering of her head while in public would traditionally be understood as a sign of her withdrawing herself from matronage. And the decision of a Roman husband to divorce his wife for doing so would amount to a ratification of the exclusion her bare head had expressed. A move towards 
the abandonment of the female head covering would have struck many at the time as a move toward a more licentious, a more sexually provocative way of appearing in public, precisely the kind of social influence Paul is anxious to avoid, close quote. So, men will participate unveiled to say something about the miracle of regeneration, and women will participate veiled to communicate that we are a chaste people and, and that we as Christian women are content under our husband's authority. That's the new tradition. And Paul is saying, thank you very much for maintaining that. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Here, Paul appears eager to ensure that they don't over-apply what he is saying. Yes, there are certain differences, and yes, those differences should be reflected in our attitude and attire. But fundamentally, we are interdependent as men and women. The woman came from the man, but every man comes from a woman, and all things are from God. As with most biblical principles, there is a ditch on either side. Some underestimate the differences and some overestimate them. And the trick, of course, is to maintain the narrow road between. Paul now pivots and makes a supporting argument from nature. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. If church history is correct and Paul was a bald man, then we can understand why this argument may have appealed to him. In essence, he's saying, we see in nature that women often have long, beautiful hair, as if to gently remind us of this principle of honoring the head. That seems to be the point he's making. As for the reference to long hair on a man, the Pillar New Testament commentary again is helpful. It says, this may suggest that homosexual influences were penetrating the church, since long hair was associated with homosexuality in the Roman world, close quote. Paul's central point here is that we ought not to look as though we are rebelling against the created order when we gather together for worship. Men ought not to look as though they wish to be women, and women ought not to look as though they wish to be men. As redeemed people, we should appear content and at peace with our maker. That's the main idea here. Now, as to how this plays out in a contemporary context, obviously we will need to be wise and discerning. The cultural symbols and recognized cues are, of course, going to be different today than they were 2,000 years ago. And they'll have to be adapted to place as well as to time. 2,000 years ago, if a woman wore a Roman stola to church, it communicated clearly that she was a married woman and in happy submission to her husband's authority. If a woman today showed up in my church wearing a Roman stola, I would assume that she was a character in a play or that she was very cold or lost or perhaps a time traveler. I would certainly not make the connection with marriage and submission. So, we will need to communicate this principle differently today. Wearing a wedding ring will be part of this. How we dress will be part of this. How much makeup we wear, even how and where we sit in church, 
will be part of this. We have our own set of subtle cues in our culture, just as surely as they had them back then. And by the way, we do this sort of thing all the time when we read and apply the Bible. Think, for example, of Jesus' instructions about fasting in Matthew 6. He says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Now, most of us understand that Jesus isn't commanding us here to anoint our head with oil whenever we fast. That's just the first century Jewish application of the principle. The command is to not try and show everyone that you're fasting. Today, the application would be shave, brush your hair, wear a clean shirt, and use some mouthwash. Don't make it obvious to everyone that you are suffering. Keep that between you and God. So the principle is retained and the application is modified according to culture. That's the idea. Paul is saying that women should not appear as though they are attempting to usurp the role and responsibility given to the man in the order of creation to lead and to teach the word of God. So women, participate by all means, but try to do that without appearing to usurp and displace the man. That's the idea. Now, before we leave this whole section, we should take just a minute and deal with that very odd phrase in verse 10, where Paul says that we should do all this for the sake of the angels. What in the world does that mean? Well, we mustn't be dogmatic here simply because there isn't enough content to justify our being dogmatic here. The only real cue we have on this comes from Acts 12.23. In Acts 12, Herod gave a speech to the people of Tyre and Sidon, and the speech went very well, and the people were shouting, The voice of a god! and not of a man. Immediately, verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So in that story, an angel struck someone down for appearing to offend against the created order. Herod, a mere man, pretended to be a god. And so perhaps what Paul is saying in verse 10 is that women need to be careful about pretending to be men. The angels get offended whenever we rebel against the created order. That may be it. All right, in verse 17, Paul begins addressing the second worship issue having to do with communion. Apparently here, they were going about things in completely the wrong way. He says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? <laughs> no, I will not. It will be helpful here to remember that the church at this time was meeting in the house of a man named Titius Justus. You will recall that the Christians were kicked out of the synagogue and that they moved the whole church into the house of the man who lived next door. You can read about that in Acts 18.7. Historians tell us that a good-sized Roman home at that time 
would likely have had a dining area that could comfortably sit 10 to 12 people. It would also have had an outdoor courtyard that could have sat between 30 and 70 people, depending on the size of the home. And so it seemed that what was happening was that when the church gathered on the Lord's Day for communion, the rich, important people were eating in the dining area and the poor people were sitting huddled together outside in the courtyard. Like good Romans always did, they were dividing according to class. But that's not acceptable, Paul says. In fact, what he says here is quite astonishing. Look at verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Apparently, we can't just do the Lord's Supper however we like. If we don't do it the right way, then it isn't the Lord's Supper. It's just you eating a piece of bread and having a bit of wine on your own. If the meaning is obscured by the method, then it would be better not to do it at all. That's what Paul says in verse 17. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Every time you do communion, he says, you actually get worse as Christians. Your, your communion liturgy is actually a de-sanctifying experience. And you'd be better off if you stopped practicing it entirely. That's a pretty remarkable thing to say. But then again, the communion liturgy in Corinth was a pretty remarkable thing, and not in a good way. In addition to sitting by class, there was no coordination. The meal in the main dining area would be served when those guests had assembled, and then everyone else would eat on their own, if indeed they had any food to eat. Some got drunk, some went home hungry and humiliated. The whole thing did more to obscure the gospel than just about anything they could have designed had that been their intention. And so Paul reminds them of what the Lord's Supper is. He walks them through the basics once again. We read about that in verses 23 to 26. Four, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is intended to serve as a picture and a reminder of the gospel. Now, that isn't to say that the Lord isn't truly and really present in it. In chapter 10, Paul made the point that to participate in the meal is to participate in Christ. There is a reality here that is more than mere remembrance. But there is remembrance. Kiampa and Rosner are helpful here. They say, The bread should be understood to represent Christ's body just as the different elements of the Passover cedar represented and reminded them of different aspects of Israel's experience of redemption at the time of the Exodus. Close quote. So, Communion intends to recall the central act of our redemption. It reminds us of what Jesus did, and it calls us back to our covenant relationship with God by means of that central event. In essence, communion is like renewing our wedding vows. Baptism is like our wedding day, and communion is like our anniversary when we remember and reaffirm our pledge and allegiance. And that's why you have to take it seriously. Paul says that in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread 
or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Remember, the whole issue here is that the overly casual slapdash approach to communion that was in evidence in Corinth was actually a de-Christianizing event, according to the Apostle Paul. It served to obscure the gospel as opposed to reminding and reinforcing. So now here, Paul is calling for a slower, more thoughtful, and deliberate approach. Before partaking, all participants should engage in some careful self-examination. Now, as to what a person should be thinking about during this time, Matthew Henry is very helpful. He says, let him consider the sacred intention of this holy ordinance, its nature and use, and compare his own views in attending on it and his disposition of mind for it. And when he has approved himself to his own conscience in the sight of God, then let him attend. Closed quote. In essence, Henry says, take a minute to make sure you understand what communion is saying about the death of Jesus Christ and to evaluate how you stand in relation to that central truth. I think that's exactly right. F.F. Bruce adds another important dimension. He says the context implies that his self-examination will be specially directed to ascertaining whether or not he is living and acting in love and charity with his neighbors, closed quote. So think about yourself in relation to the cross, and then think about yourself in relation to other people. And then, and only then, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So Paul says, let there be coordination, let there be unity, and let there be clarity. Let's understand what we are doing. Let's be considerate of one another, and let's make sure that our worship is pleasing and honoring to the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.